Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. Today, we have Mills Snell here with us. Mills has a background in multiple industries, and you'll get to hear all about the path that has led him to where he stands now. He started his career in the M&A world as an owner of an advisory firm in Columbia, South Carolina. Since then, he has worked in financial planning, permanent equity, and real estate. However, his most recent business endeavor has been becoming the owner of a commercial construction company that works heavily in roofing. He closed this deal in April of 2021, 10 months after coming across the business. The details of this will be our primary focus on this episode. On today's podcast, you'll get to hear him discuss his experience of running this company as he approaches the end of his first year of ownership. He'll help give you insight into what this type of acquisition looks like and any challenges you may face during it. Enjoy. If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence, all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. MicroAcquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and MicroAcquire is going to be our choice for a sourcing platform. Welcome back to Owned and Operated. Today on the show, we have a good friend of mine, Mills. Mills, welcome. Thanks so much, Sean. Yeah. So we met on Twitter probably last March or April. I don't even remember. I think that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. Like personal anecdote here. Mills was super helpful in giving me some encouragement to close on a bunch of deals last year, help me through some structuring stuff. Overall, good friend. So I'm appreciative of all that, but also super grateful to have you here on the show. Well, I always enjoy chatting with you. And I've been reluctant to come on the show, but you're persuasive and persistent. So here I am. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's exactly right. All right. So how about you give us like a 60 second primer in what you've been up to throughout your career, but especially over the last year? Sure. So I'm a native of South Carolina, married for 11 years. I've got four kids and my background was kind of circuitous, but I kind of fell backwards into the M&A world and was the owner of a sell-side M&A advisory firm here in Columbia, South Carolina. We kind of helped business owners in that no man's land between too big for a business broker and too small for a traditional investment bank. So kind of think like five to 20 or $25 million in enterprise value. Although since I was there, really traditional investment banks have kind of moved down the spectrum or down the food chain in terms of size of transaction they'll work on. But was there, had two really good partners, and ultimately ended up selling my ownership to them and wanted to get away from the fee-for-advice world. It was really good business and really interesting business model. We kind of took the opposite approach of just, you know, transaction advisory, but we were spending a lot of time getting business owners ready for a sale, holding their hand through the transaction we would sometimes be engaged like two to three years beforehand. And then we also were a RIA, a registered investment advisor. So we did fee only financial planning. So you think you have this person who has a, you know, $10 million net worth, like $985,000 of it is in the business. And the rest is like in a little IRA and they haven't set much aside and they have to figure out how to retire and recreate an income stream without working in the business, you know, 60 hours a week. So we would help them get ready for a sale, hold their hand in the transaction, and then we'd manage their liquidity post-close. And so parted with my partners in 2017. They bought me out. I'd been buying real estate in Columbia and was really intrigued by that asset class and continued to do more there. 
So yeah, Edwards in Columbia and opened the office for Permanent Equity, who a lot of these folks I think know or have heard of and led the deal team for a little while and ended up coming across the transaction that was here in my backyard. Out of the several thousand that we looked at, there were not that many that were close by. And this one was not a perfect fit for Permanent Equity. It didn't have a ton of like non-owner leadership in place that would be there to transition. And yeah, long story short, ended up doing a deal with the two sellers there to kind of pass the baton of ownership. It's a commercial construction business, commercial roofing contractor, primarily doing re-roofing and some new construction, but all commercial, no residential. And when did you first see the deal and when did you end up actually closing on it? We closed April 1st of 2021 and we probably first looked at it Let's see. I left permanent equity June of 20, June 1st of 2020 to work on it full time. So it took us 10 months to the day to close. And we probably had looked at it maybe nine to 12 months before that. We got outbid at permanent equity. We made a run at it. We got outbid by an independent sponsor who wasn't able to put together their debt or their equity. And they started to aggressively retrade with the sellers and the sellers just kind of said, you know, F you, we don't have to sell to you. They're in their mid fifties. So wasn't like they were, you know, too far past, you know, their opportunity and their window. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty long maturation cycle. Yeah, it is. So deal first showed up in permanent equity. You were there, said, Hey Brent, I want to go take this bad boy down myself. It was kind of good timing because it really coincided with the onset of COVID and our deal flow really slowing down. And, you know, I was a cost, you know, a cost center here in South Carolina and was really part of a, a function of the team that was all like deal engine and deal generation. And so when it looked like, Hey, we might not do a transaction for the next, you know, 12 to 18 to 24 months, you know, I was cognizant of that and Brent was cognizant of that. And so it was kind of the right, right place, right time. And I went to Brent and said, Hey, I'd love to get your blessing. I technically, you know, we looked at this deal as permanent equity. It's here in my backyard. Could I get your, your blessing to go pursue it on my own? And as you know, I mean, you, you have interacted with Brent a lot, you know, incredibly kind and just really generous. And was like, man, I'll just do whatever I can to help you. And I think that'd be a really great fit. So whatever I can do to support you. So went and did the deal on my own. Yeah, that's awesome. So commercial roofing, big, like big commercial roofing. You don't have to go into revenue or whatever if you don't want to, but like, can you give us an idea of scope maybe for the region or the state or something like that? Yeah. So I had tweeted about it a little while back and you were rooting me on, but we just made the cut for the top 100 roofing contractors in the U S we're actually number 100. Nice. It was kind of lackluster. I was like, man, I felt really good. Based on the previous year, we would have been like in the 80s, but I guess everybody grew. And so we got bumped literally to number 100. So it's publicly available information. We're just over 17 million in revenue for 20. That was based on 2021. And we have about 100 employees. The business has been around close to 30 years. We have a fleet of, you know, call it 50 pickup trucks and some kind of light to medium equipment, boom trucks, dump trucks, semi, a bunch of different like lulls, forklift, material handlers, those kind of things that go into roofing. All right. So that's big. So top hundred, that's awesome. I mean, first off, that's just, that's just, <laughs> just sweet, man. barely, just barely that. <laughs> that's, that's totally sweet though. Who cares? You just don't say what number you were. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's yeah. we just put the logo, you know, like on our, on our marketing material and people are like, Oh, cool. Although the founders, the founders are like, we never talk about that kind of stuff. It's really weird that you want to emphasize it. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely probably a different culture. Okay. So big roofing. I assume you had no roofing experience. Yep. Like I've been handy growing up, but like if I had had to, you know, get a new roof on my house, I wasn't going to do it myself. And we don't even do any residential. So commercial is kind of a whole other animal, higher barriers to entry, you know, insurance requirements, OSHA compliance, a bunch of things that kind of create some differentiation and, and barriers to entry. So one of the things I would be, maybe the inspiration for the question was, was the deal done purely because it was in your backyard? Like, was that the most attractive thing? Or did you like have some other thesis behind commercial roofing? 
It was very congruent with my thesis. I mean, if you had said, hey, Mills, I have the deal of a lifetime in Ohio, I would have said, good luck, John, go for it. You know, like <laughs> I was not going to, I was not going to move. So it checked a handful of boxes for me. The big ones were that, you know, it's a high free cash flow generation business. It's relatively high margin. And I got to sit in a really beneficial seat at permanent equity. You know, I got to look at a whole bunch of different businesses up and down you know, the spectrum in terms of, you know, what industry they were in, what were their margin characteristics. And we looked at, you know, $300 million general contractors who made less EBITDA than Aquasil does. So it's kind of nice to have had that kind of seat, so to speak, to be able to look at what I liked and what I didn't like. And for better or worse, it kind of made me picky. It just so happened that, you know, Aquasil checked a bunch of these boxes. So first is high free cash flow generation, which is a function of margin, but also low CapEx. So we don't have to have super specialized equipment. We have to keep a fleet of pickup trucks, right? But it's not like we have to buy something crazy like septic tank trucks or something like that. And then it's a very acute need, an acute pain point. When somebody's roof is leaking, they're like, whatever you have to do, please, you know, fix it. Right. And even if a building, like when there was all this talk about, you know, is there going to be like mass exodus from, you know, commercial office space and stuff. If you're a landlord, even if your building is vacant and the roof is leaking, you are going to pay to fix the roof because otherwise you have like mold and remediation issues and all kinds of other problems that arise. It's also the highest it's the highest kind of cost factor for most commercial property owners in the CapEx life cycle for their commercial real estate. So like paving the parking lot, doing tenant upfit, like, you know, changeover between leases, all those things pale in comparison to roofing. And then the other large factor for me was that there was some edge that I brought to the table, which mainly was relational. I know almost all of our clients, or I'm kind of one or two degrees separated from most of our clients or potential clients. So that's, you know, property managers, real estate developers, owners of commercial general contractors. I was able to kind of fit right in, so to speak, and it's very congruent and complementary to me owning and wanting to grow my commercial real estate portfolio. Yeah. Is it through the commercial real estate portfolio that you sort of met all these other people or how did you get to know them? Uh, just like people within my network in Columbia, you're saying who own own real estate or touch it? Yeah. Like how did the community get built? I mean, just being from Columbia, South Carolina and living here, you know, for most of my life, I, I moved away for a little bit in between high school and college and lived overseas. But other than that, I've been here, right? So I started to take an interest in real estate and spent some time with some guys who were a lot older who had built a net worth through. There's this thing that happens in the South where like there's this massive network of people who have just made a ton of money in real estate and not necessarily tied to operating businesses. And it's in a way, it's a little bit like a good old boy kind of network, but was just on the receiving end of a lot of generosity from those folks to be able to share, you know, to share a table with them, just to be able to pick up the phone and call them at different times. And and that compounded over a long period of time. So one of the guys that I spent time with who had done really, really well in kind of a multi-generational sense with commercial real estate said, you know, the progression is you're going to start off buying single family rental homes. And then you're going to max that out and you're going to get tired of managing them and you'll buy multifamily. And then that's going to wear you out and you're going to see the appeal of a long lease, low turnover, low management of commercial. And you'll buy a single user commercial building. Then you'll try and buy multi-user commercial. Then you might do a development deal. But eventually at the end of the day, you're going to graduate to timber. You're going to own timber because there's no (laughs) vacancy. There's no phone calls. There's no leaks in the middle of the night. And it's an 8% cash on cash return. But right, you can't leverage it. And it's like a, you know, 20 to 30 year return cycle. So I kind of followed, I don't own timber, but I kind of followed that. I bought some single family rentals, built up a little portfolio, bought some multifamily, didn't have any kids at the time, was self-managing all of it. Then all of a sudden, fast forward, I have four kids, ages four and under, and I'm like, hey, I've got to go run, you know, meet the plumber or whatever. And I eventually rebalanced out of almost all the residential. I just own a couple units now, rebalanced out of all the residential and just own commercial property now, but followed that life cycle. And somehow to my advantage, I started that that journey fairly young. And so it kind of had a gravitational effect where I probably 
did not deserve to be on the receiving end of phone calls about deals, but I was because it seemed like I was doing a lot of, you know, deal activity for somebody who really didn't know what they were doing. It was just on a learning curve. Nice. We're like the first or second step of that life cycle right now. So my sister and I, we've been investing in real estate for like four or five years. And we're just now kicking all the small stuff to the side. It's great properties. It's just like, I have all this activity over here. We've got big multifamily commercial here. Why am I dealing with a duplex? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're liquidating four properties right now. (laughs) Well, and you know, I believed, right. This fallacy, I think, I think it's a fallacy, but obviously there's people who make it work, which is that at some point you get to scale. Right. So I talked to people who, you know, I own no more than 20 individual single family units, but I talked to people who owned 80 to hundred and people who owned 700 and they were like, there's no, there's no efficiency, right? There's no scale where the problems go away. The problems just get bigger. And so I fast forwarded a little bit and was like, I don't know that I, that's what I really want to optimize for. Sure. It would be interesting. And I made it like a run probably, I guess, three or four years ago at a hundred unit portfolio from a 80 year old lady who, you know, self-manages everything. And it was a really interesting exercise to look at something like that, but you kind of fast forward to like six, 12, 18 months post-close. And it's like, I just don't know that this is really what I want to, you know, sink my teeth into and and commit to. Cause it's hard to, it's hard to offload something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. I remember you saying something like that that everyone graduates to timber eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I basically have like a few one-liners. That's one. Yeah, of them, no, so that's totally one of them. <laughs> it's, it's funny. I always thought farmland, but that has to be in like the same general category. Okay. So you saw a ton of deals, like thousands of deals. You, you sort of had a thesis, had to be in Columbia. Which I was not searching, right? Like I, was, I wasn't right. looking for a business to buy. I, I really fell in. Yeah, I just had this really great setup with Brent. Brent and I were friends before I worked with him and and we're still really close now. And I'd kind of always said, hey, look, I'm not going to be in a scenario where I'm not an owner after having having been an owner at my my previous firm. And permanent equity just checked enough of the boxes that I was like, yeah, Brent, you're making this really hard, right? To say no, because we have this really unique capital vehicle. We have an awesome opportunity to go deploy capital into an asset class that I really care about and I think is hyper inefficient and all the right incentives. So I, I wasn't I wasn't looking to leave. I wasn't planning on leaving. It just really kind of aligned that way. So I don't want to misconstrue things and represent that I am like a searcher that I can, you know, relate to somebody who is in the search world. I really, I really that would be disingenuous. Mm-hmm. After seeing all those deals and sort of picking all the different things that you liked, you ended up on roofing. But what would some of the other businesses that you'd have been attracted to, what would they look like? I wish I could talk in specifics because there's some really you know fun ones and interesting kind of atypical businesses that you just wouldn't think, right, would make money. I guess there's a few that I can talk about generally. One, one that I really, really liked that just traded for a super aggressive multiple was a pond management business. So... It was a route-based business with a pickup truck and some chemicals, really, really similar to pest control, but they manage private ponds. So you think, you know, there's a HOA, right, who lives on a small pond with a dam. And if the, you know, chemical composition of the pond gets off, it starts to smell, you get like lily pads and bad stuff that grows in it. And so the HOA would pay quarterly for somebody to come out and test the water and treat it. And then they could also do things like, hey, you know, we inspected your dam and that's heavily regulated and it has to be repaired. The business though was doing like $6 million in EBITDA managing like 5,000 private bonds and traded for like 14 times multiple to a pest control consolidator because they, you know, pest control multiples have gotten kind of crazy over the past kind of 10 to 12 years. And so some pest control, you know, roll up was like, Hey, this is close enough. We can do this. And it's cheaper than pest control. (laughs) That is cool. That's pretty interesting. I'm going to Google that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should you should look. I don't know how many ponds there are in your area and how far of a geographic spread you'd have to go to do it, but I mean, a lot of it in my kind of DNA prior to permanent equity and what attracted me to Brent and what really endeared us to one another is I really don't have a tech background. I don't, you know, I don't really know software businesses. I haven't invested in 
very many early stage things. It's more kind of the mundane, the boring, the durable, right? Every, my whole thesis around Aquaseal was every building has a roof and no roof lasts forever. So I know in 30 years, right, regardless of what happens with, you know, office, work from home, like autonomous vehicles, like you name it, right? There's still going to be commercial buildings and they still have to have a roof. Yeah. I mean, pretty rock solid thesis. All right. So you bought this thing. You're going on a year, eight months. Nine months. Yep. Nine months in. That's awesome. Can you walk us through like the first three? I'm going to ask about the other six, but like just the first three. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of, again, so much of this is skewed by the approach that I kind of gravitated towards both as a M&A advisor, but also my time at permanent equity, which is really kind of primarily the mentality of do no harm. And so I knew that coming in, right, and, and the sellers were obviously really clear on this, they didn't need the world's foremost expert on roofing, right? They needed somebody who was going to say, hey, look, here's how we take the business from where we are and, you know, and continue to grow and compound. They were at a point where they're like, look, if we add a million dollars in revenue, our heads are going to explode. And so they needed more professionalization and systems and processes. I mean, we're still on 52 pay periods a year and we do paper timesheets for hundred employees. So there's just a lot of, you know, improvement and massaging and professionalization that from, from a systems building standpoint that, that can happen and will happen. So the first three months, all that to say with that is kind of my backdrop and my mentality. I really thought that I wanted to spend the first 30 days on cruise, just like hand in hand, we, we typically run like an eight man crew, two pickup trucks. I wanted to go spend a day or two days with each foreman. Cause we have about 15 foremen who lead crews that size. And I don't know why I didn't end up doing that. I can't really remember what changed that plan, but I'm glad that I didn't because I think it would have been super confusing. The sellers are still around, right? These guys are my partners for at least two years in terms of employment, but also part of our deal structure is that I really wanted them to look back and say, this is the best deal we've ever done. So they're going to be on the cap table. They have the option to be on the cap table in some way, shape or form for over 10 years. I want them to look back and just be like, this is the best deal ever. And so I didn't have to like jump in and handle a bunch of, you know, admin and AR and, you know, just a bunch of minutia that typically I wouldn't say takes away, right? It just consumes you at the front end of an acquisition. And so instead of really having to dive into that, I rode shotgun with one of our superintendents for pretty much 45 days. And this is a guy who, you know, has forgotten more about roofing than I'll ever know. And all of our foremen and all of our crews really look up to him and fear him and respect him. And so I got the trust transfer that I was really seeking from just being with him. And for him vouching for me, instead of having to go spend two days, you know, two days per crew. But there was some confusion, right? Because these guys are like, who is this guy? Is he taking over for the superintendent? You know, and there's just always confusion, right? There's always a vacuum. And if you're trying to communicate with a team of 15 people, that's difficult. If you try and communicate with a team of 100 people, that's difficult. And so it's been a really nice internally and externally. The goal has been this is a transition, right? This isn't like an overnight. These guys have built this business for 30 years. They're not going anywhere. And I think that really is to the benefit of our brand, but also our employees and our customers. Yeah. When you went to close, if I remember right, you were working inside the business in some role prior to close. Is that correct? Yeah, a little bit. I wasn't like, I wasn't on the payroll. So So not to that capacity, but as we got closer to the finish line, the sellers were just maxed out, right? And there was just a lot of legwork related to the transaction that needed some extra effort. And I was basically sitting there bored. I'd been working on the transaction full time, not doing anything else, not getting a paycheck for 10 months. And so in the last kind of 30 days, I was like, okay, put me in, you know, like just I'll come to the office. I'll do whatever you need me to do. I'll freaking be a courier for legal documents if it helps get the deal done at this point. And so I rolled up my sleeves a good bit in those days, kind of leading up to close. But again, I mean, I don't want to say that as though it's like prescriptive, right? And everybody should do this because 
the deal structure was just very unique and the deal characteristics were unique such that there was a lot of trust that was built and conveyed and kind of earned, right? Not just me, but also them. I, I started to really trust the sellers incredibly deeply leading up to close to the extent that me and one of the sellers went down to visit a really large roofing contractor I got to be friends with in Fort Lauderdale. Just the two of us before close went down and were drilling this guy with questions to say, hey, at 450 employees, what can you tell us? You know, How do you get from 100? What do you learn going from 100 to 450 employees? So there was a lot of atypical things that were kind of happening, but that is definitely one of them. Yeah. So you came in road superintendent. I like that. I think that's cool. And you are right. I mean, the, like we're, we're in the consuming part, right? So today we're like two or one and a half days in to our most recent acquisition. And it's none of the stuff you want to be doing. It's AR and the, I mean, yeah, it's AR and admin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like vendor management, you know, switching over payroll title transfer. If you did an asset purchase for vehicles, like lease assignments, all those things get like teed up, right? And they're on the precipice at closing. And then everybody's like, great, congratulations. And they ride off into the sunset. And then you're like, oh gosh, I actually have to, now all this was just legally setting the deck so that all this could transfer. But now it all actually has to actually get effectuated. That's no small task, right? And you do, you've done that numerous times. So you've got some really good reps on it. I'm really grateful that I didn't have to go get bogged down in that because I think I just would have been in you know the office and shut the door. People would have been like, what's happening here? You know? Did you accomplish your goal of doing no harm in the first three months? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I guess I should. I haven't really asked the team members there that question, but I think so. I mean, a lot of it for me, I was trying to optimize around how can I add value in significant ways at low or no cost? And so just at the very beginning, I started to realize, you know, we have maybe 30 to 40 jobs going on at any given time. I can't keep them straight. You know, it's, I can't, I don't even know the names of all of them, much less who is the customer? What's the contract amount? What foreman is on the job? Where are we in the life cycle? I mean, we have some jobs that might last six to nine months and others that might last four days. So just not being able to quantify any of that, the extent of our, workflow management is a paper sheet with the name of the job, a job ID for job costing and payroll. And that's it. So if you want to know, okay, who is this job for? You know, what's the contract amount? Where are the plans, right? Or the specs, what type of roof we're installing? All those kind of questions, you have to go to like a dozen different places. And so rather than forcing something on the team members there, one of the things I did was just build a really simple job database to mirror all those details and start to pull in information. I did that in Airtable, right? So free solution, just building a database to say, here's the job name, here's the job number, here's our customer, here's what type of roof it is. I can put pictures in it, I can drop attachments in it, whatever the case may be. And rather than me trying to get them to use it, I just started using it. And all of a sudden people were like, how does Bill know so much about these jobs and can pull this information up on the fly, like while we're standing on the roof. And then they started to say, Hey, can I use that tool? Can you give me access to it? And so now it's become kind of a backbone for us of, we still have all the paper files. We haven't done away with those things because they're so integral to the business, but now we have some redundancy and things that streamline quite a bit of the internal processes. It sounds like you did it right. I'm thinking back to the times I haven't where, you know, in your first couple, you're like, oh, you guys are doing all the stuff on paper. Like, let's just digitize it. And you don't think about it really. And then you sort of force a new process on a group of people and it's a total nightmare. <laughs> and, and because I think as young people, we're, we like totally disregard anything on paper. So the moment we find out that there's a paper process, we're just like, oh, well, that's t- complete trash. We just need to eliminate. Like, just yeah. eliminate that right now. What what could we possibly be doing with paper? And then you find out that like, you know, two months later, you're like, oh shit, what did we do? <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I think the more I've gotten to know and interact with baby boomer founders, just to paint in really broad brushstrokes, those folks, especially in the South, right, can kind of come across as like, oh, shucks, you know, and like very 
it's easy to think less of somebody like that, right? And go, oh man, they're just so simplistic and they're not very educated or whatever. And in reality, like most of the time, there's a really good reason why they're doing the thing that makes no sense to you the way that they're doing it. So I think that there's a lot to be said for budgeting in this sense, not financial budgeting, but just budgeting the amount of goodwill that you have going into the transaction. And like, where do you want to spend it, right? Do you want to spend it on taking this person who's probably worked here 20 plus years and prying the paper out of their hands and making them put it into, you know, some really slick like ERP or CRM? I mean, maybe, right? Maybe that's where you want to spend all your energy. But I think there's probably also some other places that that goodwill can and should be expended that you don't necessarily just need to jump to remove all the paper, you know? Yeah. Is that really how you think about it as like sort of a thermometer of goodwill that you can call on as needed? Or like a bank account, you know, like, so deposits and withdrawals, you know, at some point I'm making, you know, I'm making withdrawals out of this account. And that I think works systemically, but also with an individual, right? How much goodwill have I built with this person? And what can I do to add goodwill to our relationship? And not not to make it overly transactional, it's relational, right? So it's very messy and the lines are really blurred. But what I wanted to do right out of the gate was I want to build trust with these people, right? I want them to not trust me in just some thinly veiled way, but I actually want to go to bat for them and make them understand that like this is my long-term home as much as it is their long-term home. Uh, I don't have any like plans to exit the business or flip it or anything like that. And so how can I help convey trust over a really long period of time and not just, you know, immediately do things that erode that trust for, or, or, you know, act as a, as a withdrawal of goodwill. I like that. I don't think I've ever framed it like that, but I like that a lot. I'll let you know how it works out. It, it may, I may hit my face on the pavement with it. <laughs> I mean, even if you do, I still think I've honestly never really thought about maybe conceptually like, oh, we should do something good or, oh, we want to do right by people or you can sort of frame it however you want, but not really as like, hey, I have 10 units of trust and I can add onto that or I can subtract from that with any number of decisions. I don't know. I've never thought about it like that. I like it. That's cool. What's nice about trust too, John, is that typically, right, you start out in the positive, right? People just naturally are going to be somewhat suspect, right? Or they're going to be unsure. But unless you just give them some reason right out of the gate, most people default to trust, right? You could sit down at coffee with somebody and they're not going to immediately be like, this guy is a liar. You know, they're going to assume that you're a pretty good person. And so you start out in the positive. And so what I didn't want to do is come in and immediately be like, oh my gosh, this is so easy. The way you guys have been doing things for 20 years doesn't make any sense. Let's fix it is just, let me just try not to make any changes for the first 90 days. And let me just get in, really sink my teeth into it. Otherwise, you're just knocking down these like straw men that may not even really be the root cause. They're just symptomatic of something else. And so really getting in and starting to understand what are the root issues, right? Or the root drivers of value in this business. It could be that the fact that that one specific customer calls that guy on a cell phone, you view as a huge risk, but it could be a massive competitive advantage for the business. And if you try and take that away in the first two weeks, because you're worried about that guy getting hit by a bus, like you could lose a key customer, right? Or whatever the example may be. Don't make those knee-jerk reactions. I mean, I do that all the time, right? Knee-jerk reaction. And then I'm like, shoot, I wish I could undo that. When you had ownership of your advisory firm, you guys were doing sell side, And I'm just going to assume that most of this framework that you've designed, obviously, I'm sure some of it has come from Brent, but like you had years of experience in M&A prior to that. So is this framework from being on the sell side and helping sellers prep for sale? Did you get into the, like the post-close period and you were like, man, that, this is not how I should ever act if I do this? Like, how'd you build it? Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of it came from being very like, being very seller-sided, right? And sitting on their side of the table and thinking about how do you protect a seller's interest, right? Which is not just financial. It's also quality of life and just preferences and goals around a transaction. And so when you spend so much time with somebody saying, what do you want out of a transaction to make it successful? I think that's kind of the predisposition that was ingrained in me. And so if anything, I probably 
you know, skew too far in that direction, right? What do we need to make this transaction? That was Brent's like feedback was always like, Mills, we like, we need somebody to go have a tough conversation with this seller and their counsel. Like you like them too much and they like you too much kind of, <laughs> kind of vibe. And so that's been something that I've had to kind of grow in, right? Is how do I actually have the tough conversation that needs to be had with this foreman or with the superintendent or with this, you know, this crew member about like, Hey, this just doesn't fly. This isn't okay. And I'm much more of like what you would call like a player's coach rather than this kind of authoritarian, you know, heavy handed and, and the sellers are much more that way. Right. So it kind of works really well to have both of those dynamics. I wasn't really that aware of that going in. I had a little bit of a premonition about it, but I wasn't, it wasn't acute awareness for me. So the first uh, three months you did, you did no to little harm, little to no harm. (laughs) (laughs) And then after that, you know, you bought it in April we start dealing with a ton of supply chain issues. We start dealing with like real labor crisis, like oh, sort of the pandemic came to a head. How did that affect you in a big commercial setting? It really, the kind of first inklings of it were, you know, job site safety and job site precautions, you know, to our benefit, most of the work we do is outside and it's on a roof. And so it's not like we're a you know painting contractor who's in people's space. We're up on the roof and kind of out of the way and out of sight, out of mind. But OSHA regs, and this is all really ramped up a lot recently with the emergency temporary standard and what all is going to happen with it at the Supreme Court. But if you're over 100 employees, things get much, much, much more stringent. So we're we're right below that, thankfully, and we're going to try and stay right below that until we get some clarity. But I kind of was able to go dip my toe in the water in a bunch of different ways. So started off riding shotgun with the superintendent, just learning the way that the business functions, how, how the workflows happen. How does work get done? How do decisions get made in the field leading up to in the field? How does that trickle back into the office and into cash flow management? And then I spent a fair amount of time working on or just kind of learning, right, the nuances of estimating. So we have this weird dynamic. It's kind of the opposite of you guys with the home service business where if your average transaction size is what, like $3,500 to $5,500 or something like that, our average contract value might be two hundred seventy-five to three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, but we have a much longer lead cycle. And so, for every single job that we bid, whether it's competitively bid or a negotiated job, or just somebody saying, "Hey, I want you to do my roof and whatever it takes," we still have to bid those jobs, and we still have sunk cost for our estimators' time. And it could be, you know, depending on the size of the job, it could be as little as maybe five to 10 hours of estimating man hours, but it could be as many as, you know, hundreds of estimating man hours, depending on the size of the job. So that whole dynamic is interesting because we have sunk cost. We don't want to win every job. We're doing something wrong, right? If we're, if our hit rate is a hundred, but how do we create some type of feedback loop and information around estimating, right? What we win, why do we win it? And a lot of times blinds, it's a blind bid situation. You don't necessarily know going in who you're bidding against. And if it's like, if we're bidding work for the state or state funding, state funded jobs, then it's like sealed bid. Everybody submits them. You all sit in a room and they open them out and read them and you know who won and you know what everybody did. So I delved really deep down into our estimating department and understanding it. It's all computerized. It's fairly systematized but really spent a lot of time with our estimators and then started to dip my toe in the water of project management. So just all the different kind of phases and life cycle of work to really be able to understand the different facets of the business. And at no point am I going to be our estimator, right? We have four and a half full-time estimators. I don't need to take any of their place, right? But just making sure I understand kind of top to bottom, how does that function of the business work? How does project management work? How does you know, whatever, all the facets. Did you have more to add to that? <laughs> I don't have to. I mean, it's, you just sort of, it's been a luxury, so right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's basically, it's basically been like a luxury to be able to kind of step back. Right. And then go insert myself into something and then step back again and then go insert myself into some other function and aspect of the business. I guess. Do you, do you like that? I'm on a soapbox. I do because I really don't like not understanding something. Yeah. Yeah, I'm hearing you talk through this and like I'm into it and you seem, <laughs> you seem super into it. Yeah, and, it's super fun. 
and, and just like the the nuts and bolts seem to really capture your attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's I think it's really interesting and it's really fascinating. One of the biggest surprises, in a way, is that everybody inside the business assumes that our customers know about roofing and they understand roofing terminology, vocabulary, oh, sure. the way it works. And I'm like, hey, look, guys, nobody is an insider that we're selling to. And so, so much of it has become an emphasis on education and just how do we communicate and help people understand in in the estimating, we don't have any salespeople, right? We don't have a sales function. It's just somebody requests an estimate, we spend time estimating and we send it to them. And up until this point, there's been almost no follow-up. So how do we create some type of system around educating and building trust on the front end. Roofing is like notoriously one of the least trusted trades. And a lot of that is probably for like good reason, right? Because there's a lot of roofers more so on the residential side who come take your money and they screw you over or whatever, right? Whatever happens, right? Your, your roof leaks and they can't come back and fix it or they won't come back and fix it. So trying to turn that on its head and really focus on how do we build and engender trust with people in an industry where customer experience is not on anybody's radar. You know, I'm sure you've heard, there's plenty of deal folks who say, hey, part of my criteria is like focused on industries with low net promoter score or something like that. I don't think there's a roofer who knows what net promoter score is, much less tracks it. Like I love that from a competitive advantage standpoint and being an accumulating advantage over time is just thinking about customer experience. Yeah, yeah, I agree with like everything you just said. Yeah, what's the part of the business that you're going to throw yourself at next? Probably payroll. Oh yeah. We have, well, you said a hundred people or, or I'm sorry, yeah. 99. <laughs> 99. Yeah, yeah people. exactly. <laughs> 99 people on paper timesheets. Yeah. That sounds like a journey. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of those things where I know that we all know, right. That it's not accurate. The problem is, is how do we transfer from something that's inaccurate and inefficient to something that can be closer to reality without it feeling like, hey, I'm taking money out of your pocket to my employees, right? It feels very zero sum, right? Any dollar I take out of your pocket goes to my pocket or the bottom line. But ultimately, I think what the scenario will probably look like is not just saying, hey, look, we're doing away with paper timesheets. Now we're now we're doing, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole spectrum, right, of different things that you can do. Everything from just a web-based or a mobile-based, you know, time tracking all the way to like GPS in the fleet vehicles and, you know, the clock starts when they leave the shop or, you know, when they get to the job or whatever the case may be. I'm less concerned about the like semantics of where we land on that spectrum. And I'm more concerned with whatever solution we migrate to marrying that with alignment of incentives so that it's not just like, Hey, our, our time tracking has gotten a lot more accurate and annoying. It's, Hey, our time tracking has gotten a lot more accurate. And now I have a clear line of sight into how that impacts me and my paycheck. Right? So what's interesting about our business is that labor is the most variable cost. Same for you, right? You know, at the end of the day, if I'm taking this tank hot water heater out of somebody's home and I'm putting a new one in and I'm going to have maybe some miscellaneous pecs or like gas line or whatever, right? Some small stuff. But at the end of the day, the amount of time it takes your tech is the biggest variable. If it takes them three hours, you're probably good. If it takes them eight, you're hosed on the job or whatever, right? The, the, maybe the window is not quite that wide or wider, for us, we might have jobs that have 2,000 man hours budgeted in them. If we do the job in 1,500 man hours, we're probably making really, really great margins. If we do it in 2,200 man hours, we might be you know, totally losing and taking a bath. Our crews don't know any of that. So finding a way to slowly and systematically push that kind of financial literacy and really literacy around gross margin per job, right? that to me becomes this massive force multiplier where the biggest, I'll say, kind of potential weakness in any business right now in the skilled trades is labor. How do we kind of take that core vulnerability and make it our biggest strength? I think it's ultimately comes down to measuring yield on labor, right? Because that's our biggest variable cost. How that happens when it actually gets down to it, I'm not totally sure. 
we have the right ingredients at Aquaseal, which is part of what attracted me to it, is we have our own captive labor base. Most commercial roofers operate with subcontracted labor because it's just way more efficient, right? You can kind of stop answering the phones or if the phones stop ringing for 30 days, you don't have to worry about payroll. We have a double-edged sword, right? But it's, it's a huge advantage for us in terms of quality is having the largest captive labor force of commercial roofers and in in definitely in our, in our larger metro area and probably one of the top three biggest in the state. I'm hearing you walk through this and I'm like, man, it sounds like COO stuff. And then I literally just remembered that that is the title that you, <laughs> that you are currently have bestowed on you. I guess, can you share that a little bit? Because usually the, the typical, I'm not saying you're a searcher or anything like that, but the typical is you go buy a business, you become the owner, CEO, president, whatever the heck you want to call yourself. In this case, you've bought the business in some capacity and you've subordinated yourself, I assume, to a CEO, which I assume is one of the owners. Yep. 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 Exactly. So that was, I guess, intentional in a lot of ways. It partially, I think the best way to sum it up, right, is the fact that the sellers have been here for a really long time. And this business is characteristic of that kind of messy middle, right? Where it's much larger than an owner operator kind of situation, but it's not yet at a size. It could be, right? It's just that the sellers, right? The founders didn't operate it in a way where they were absentee. So when you're in that messy middle and you don't have owner operator status and you don't have, you know, third-party management that's non-owners, there has to be some kind of handover. And I didn't have this whole deal team and, you know, bench of management where it was like, Hey, we'll unplug you guys and mills and like three, you know, industry execs are going to come in and take over day-to-day operations. If it was a hundred million dollar roofing business, you could do something like that. If it was a $50 million roofing business, you could probably do something like that, but it has to be much more gradual in passing the baton, both relationally and operationally and just knowledge transfer. Yeah. So I'm not going to, I guess part part of the maybe question that you're not asking, I'm not like against the CEO title, right? It's not like I'm going to be COO forever. And that's like, I don't know, some humble brag or something like that. I think it just really fits for right now. And it helps with internally and externally, the perception of transition instead of like, oh, wow, did those founders, are they gone? Like, are they in Tahiti? You know, like, no, they're still here, right? And they're still very much involved in the business and will be for a while. And I think that de-risks it, right? Not just for me, but for the employees, for our customers, you know, all kinds of all kinds of stakeholders. Yeah, I can see the benefit of it. And I think it makes sense in a lot of ways. It is just unique, <laughs> which you've said that a few times about your deal. <laughs> I just think it's cool. I think that's a cool thing. Definitely speaks back to the trust that you said that you had with the mutual trust really with the sellers and yourself. I mean, that'd be tough as a buyer to subordinate yourself and it would be tough as a seller to like do that too. (laughs) So yeah, that's pretty cool. That's cool. Our deals are always super relational. And even in the one that we just closed, like we're friends, which I think Mm -hmm. is like really cool. And the mutual trust goes such a long such a long way. I don't I don't have much more to say about that. I think I'm just impressed in general by the display of trust. Because that's not just like, hey, we trust each other. That's like, there's an act of trust there and a, a big one on both ends. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the more involved I am in the deal world and when I touch and have touched different facets of it or different components of it, you start to realize why people do things the way that they do, Right. There's a reason that traditional private equity functions the way that it does, which is, hey, we will pay up, we will lever up, but we're going to mitigate as much of the key person risk and just personnel risk as possible. And so, you know, you take this kind of upper sliver of management and if not are all gone, they will be all gone because we have, right, an industry vertical we focus on might be like aerospace, right? And we have some guys who have operated aerospace businesses as the head of finance, as the head of operations and as the chief executive. And we're bringing those guys in and that's our playbook. When you see somebody do that, you can understand, right, why, especially once you've been in it and you realize like, hey, you know, I was maybe, for example, planning on our head of finance to stay or whatever, you know, whatever the role might be and it didn't go well. And now I have this gap to fill and, you know, I'm kind of 
scrambling now. It's a mad kind of dash to figure out how to solve this problem. I don't think that the private equity way of doing things is like inherently evil. It's just risk mitigation. It's just not the way I want to do it, you know, for myself. But I think that there's there's an obvious reason, right? There's trillions of dollars of capital that gets allocated that way or has gotten allocated that way. And there's clearly a reason for it. Those folks aren't, they aren't dumb. They're just mitigating risk. So in this case, it was one of the ways for me to mitigate risk, right, was to kind of ingrain myself and, you know, entrust yeah. myself and, and then to receive trust from the sellers and for them not to throw the keys at me on the way out. That was my risk mitigation tool. It wasn't, yeah, you guys leave. I got two guys who are going to fill your shoes. So I think when you put it that way, it's not like I was doing anything smart. I was just doing something that was self-interested, you know, based on the context. So you're coming to the end of your first year. What are the big takeaways? Labor, like, I can't remember who said this. I've seen it a few different times, but like he who owns the labor, right? Like controls the table or whatever the saying might be. There's just, I ended up early on kind of in my due diligence process, reaching out to the head of our industry association, the NRCA, National Roofing Contractors Association, and just said, hey, I'm not going to tell you the name of the business. I don't even want to tell you what state it's in, but here's the scenario. I'm trying to do this transaction. Here's generally what size the business is. Here's generally what their margins are, how many employees. And here's kind of my thesis, you know, and just kind of laid it out there for him. And he was like, why would these guys want to sell? So that was really helpful, right? To talk to a guy who knows every larger kind of tier one roofing contractor in the US. He's literally exists to represent their interests. And for him to say, your biggest advantage in this business is labor, captive labor. That's worth its weight in gold. And that's really rung true. So a lot of my kind of thought and effort long term is how can this accumulating advantage around captive labor compound more, you know, more robustly? And we've done some things like we just became, I guess, about three or four months ago, we became a U.S. Department of Labor registered apprenticeship provider. It was totally free. We had a state agency who helped us put it together and we get $1,000 per year per apprentice in a state tax credit. And then we get $2,500 per apprentice in scholarship funds where we can go pay for their continuing education. So that can be like OSHA 10, OSHA 30, forklift certification, you know, first responder type, you know, emergency situation. And we can allocate those dollars and it's basically self-fulfilling in a virtuous cycle for our employees. And it's in a way that's no cost to us and no cost to them. It's just management and paperwork around it. The benefit long-term around that is that there's two requirements for apprenticeship, which is on-the-job training and wage progression. We already do that anyways. It's just that now we're building transparency around it. So Aquasil has very rarely in the past lost employees to like more pay at our competitors. We It's usually the other way around. They don't really like the quality of work and management style at our competitors and they come to us. But this way we can say, hey, look, you may start out as completely, you know, no college education, no high school diploma or GED and no roofing experience. And you might start out at $14 an hour, but here's how you're going to be making over $20 an hour over the next several years. And it's all merit-based and responsibility-based and laying that out transparently so that they know, okay, yeah, I could go across the street per se and get another dollar an hour, but I may hit a ceiling there much sooner. And so trying to, it self-selects in a way for people who are interested in something more than a paycheck for 90 days. It self-selects for somebody who's saying, I really want a career. I'm looking for a career. So we've done some kind of creative things around that. I think that's going to be our biggest, just kind of continual push, right? It's hard to marry that hiring kind of effort with the cyclicality of demand and supply chain right now. But I think if we just kind of steadily put effort in that category, it's going to compound really nicely. Yeah. We do a few similar programs to that too. Does it become even more professionalized or something where it becomes a school? And is that like a large part of the growth trajectory for you guys? I don't think it'll be that formalized. I mean, we've done some things like we have one of our manufacturers, the largest manufacturer for commercial roofing materials, who has a program that we've we've really adopted hook, line, and sinker, but we do a paid training for new entrants. So it's they get $100 a day, $500 for the week. They get lunch every day 
and they get a set of tools, which we usually pay for. We have them have them cost share it. But the first go round, we had 35 people register, 25 show up, 20 make it to the end of the week, and we interviewed 16 and we hired four. That kind of law of averages is fairly consistent. We could have hired 35 people and four might make it at the end of the day because it's just really hard ass work, right? We live in South Carolina. It's crazy hot. The first round we had was over the summer and it's just hard work. It's just hot and it's just, there's no other way around it. It's just hard work, but it subsidizes and kind of de-risks our hiring process, but it does it in a way that really is best for our foreman. Because if I talk to our foreman and say, what do you need? really their biggest desire is quality roofers. <laughs> They're like, if you keep giving me people who are green, I still have you know a six to eight man crew and I still have to get the same amount of work done. But if I have all novices, it's just that much more effort on my part. If I have guys who actually know something about roofing, who know how to heat weld TPO or know how to you know run ISO and you know fastener patterns for you know for insulation or whatever it may be, it's just less effort on their part because they still have the same requirement. They still have to lay a certain amount of squares or they still have the same kind of KPIs to think about. And so it ultimately helps our guys. I think the class that we do, the one week class, they probably learn as much in five days of class as they would in six months on the roof, just by osmosis. So that type of, we don't have to licensure for roofing is at the top, right? It's I'm the qualifier or the seller is the qualifier in this case. And he is a licensed roofer, but every technician doesn't have to be licensed like plumbing or electrical or HVAC. So it, there's probably a certain like ceiling where we don't need to send people to school, so to speak. We just need to get them on the right learning curve, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right. So the, the big takeaway from year one, is you didn't do very much harm <laughs> I don't know. and, and labor is worth its weight in gold. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever gotten into the commercial, like I've never, I don't know, checked out the commercial roofing business out of the top 100. How many of the others control their own labor? That's a good question. I'm not totally sure. I mean, I've kind of done some like informal, like, reaching out through a friend of a friend or getting to know somebody. And I mean, I met with a $70 million roofer two states away who all he does is multifamily asphalt shingle re-roofing. No new construction, no single family residential. It's only apartment complexes. And they do, you know, at least last year they did 70 million in revenue and they do work in 35 states. So it's all sub labor, no captive labor at all. And their subs just burn up the road. And one week they might be in Idaho and the next week they might be in Virginia, but they have work going on in at least a dozen places every given week. And all they're really doing is they're a sales organization and a project management organization. They make sure that the materials are on the job, the dumpsters on the job and the portageon is on the job. And the roofers come with their own tools and they slap the roof on, you know, and that's a not a bad way to do it. It's just it optimizes for one thing, right? In one niche. And we don't want to be all things to all people. We're not getting in the residential business. It's too commoditized and the margins are too compressed. Also workers comp is like 30 to 35% of payroll. And so it's very cost prohibitive to run those businesses the right way. What you get most times is you get somebody who's hiring subs, who's hiring a sub, who's hiring a sub and nobody pays workers comp. So it's kind of this gray area where a lot of them operate but you hit a ceiling of kind of eight to $10 million in revenue that way. And it's very difficult to grow beyond that without bringing everybody on and having workers comp and really kind of doing it above board. That's wild. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting, interesting industry in that way. You get some bifurcation naturally just based on the inner dynamics. Okay. I'm thinking of the roofing companies that I know, and I think a few of them are right below that cap, but I can totally see it. it to me, it always seems shocking that people could scale on the backs of subs at all. But there's some industries where that's just the nature, like carpet, floorings, that seems to be a big thing. Residential roofing, I, I never dove into commercial, but, but yeah, it always seems like they cap out early, just probably because they don't take this, the same sales and project management approach. That's and what you get is you get the residential guys, you know, if your average roof might be $7,500, right? You look at a commercial job and you're like, whoa, that like, 
small commercial job might be 40 or $50,000. And so they really want to get into those, you know, the ones who do well, they move up market with shingles. They might do like, there's a really large roofer in California who all like his core focus is HOAs. He wants to be the guy that the HOA calls when they need a new roof. And he's built a really good business that way. Getting into like apartments, right? Anything that's just big, large amounts of square footage, but the margins are just compressed. And so you get a lot of these residential roofers who are like, hey, I want to do a flat roof which is basically what we do. Most of the roofs we install are flat or relatively flat. And that's kind of scary because they're used to the scenario of, hey, the roof's really steep. If it leaks, it might leak in one or two areas around some kind of quirky pipe penetration or you know, around a chimney or something. A flat roof, if you mess it up and you don't do well, you're talking about flooding a like a building, a big building or a business. And it could be, you know, a $40,000 roof could cause, you know, $400,000 worth of damage. It's kind of a scary proposition to just try out, you know, and, and the labor is very different. The the actual installation is different. And so that's kind of a, that's kind of a little bit of a mitigator. Well, this, this was a pretty good look at the first nine months of roofing and really three years. You're like almost three years into this project in general. You look at it <laughs> 10 months later, you started working on it. 10 months later, you closed. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. As we sort of wind down, what what's the parting wisdom for anybody that wants to get into roofing? Oh gosh. Besides like don't or deal selection. I'm still fascinated by the deal selection thing. In what way? I didn't get to pick my industry. Like in a way I did in a way yeah. I didn't. Right. I was yeah. literally born into plumbing. It just so happened to be a great trade. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it's interesting that after helping sell, I'm sure hundreds of businesses and then looking at thousands over the course of a few years, like commercial roofing was the one that you landed on. Like, that's just, I don't know. That's interesting to me. Well, I mean, you know, you think about, it almost doesn't matter, right? What the industry is, was kind of my mentality. Like if you covered up the name and industry and you looked at the income statement and the balance sheet, if you see relatively high gross margin, if you see relatively high net margin, right? If you see high variable costs, low fixed cost, you know, operating margin, if you see cash that can accumulate on the balance sheet and it doesn't go all go out the door for CapEx, in my mind, like you can cover up roofing, right? Cover up commercial roofing. And you just look at those characteristics and it's like, okay, that's kind of favorable. You know, I've looked at plenty of other things that are really interesting that maybe have some artificial ceiling, right? They just have a really hard time getting much larger than two or $3 million in revenue or something like that. They have a really hard time working in a non-owner operator type scenario or whatever, whatever the limiting factor is. This was just one where the industry didn't really matter. Like I've talked to a couple of people who were like, oh my gosh, why in the world did you choose commercial roofing? It's like, I didn't like dream as a kid of like owning a commercial roofing contractor. It just has all those right characteristics. Yeah. And I agree with you. I just think it's, I think it's interesting in general. I don't know what I, again, if I wasn't born into it, like what would I pick? And I, I like all the characteristics of the industry that I'm in. So I'd probably end up, <laughs> probably end yeah. up back in it. Either and those scare like me, right? Like your, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your scenario scares me, right? I don't know how to optimize around you know, customer acquisition cost, right? In a hits driven business where, you know, I just route based crew based with, you know, techs, you know, two guys in a truck, like I just, that whole world, right. Is foreign to me. And so you make it work in a way that really, it scares me to think about trying to operate something (laughs) that way, just because I, you know, I don't have experience there. Yeah. Huh. All right. So any parting wisdom on folks looking into roofing? Right now is a really, really bad time to buy a roofing business because of the supply chain issues. I've tried to warn a couple people of that and at least two people haven't listened. So we'll see how it goes for them. But especially if you're using any leverage whatsoever, there's just a scenario where demand is incredibly high right now, but materials are very hard to get. So I think maybe the advice about that is not specific to roofing, right? But just do as much as you can from a triangulation and research standpoint, like reach out like the head of the NRCA, right? Like that's a guy that you can find his number, right? The head of the whatever National Plumbers Association or National HVAC Contractors Association. Like there's folks that you can find and get a hold of to try and get some 
feedback loop in data that's not from the seller, right? The seller is going to tell you it's okay. It will be okay. We're going to, you know, we're, we're going to be fine. I think there's, again, two folks that I've talked to who, are, who have bought roofing businesses that I think are in for a really, really rude awakening because of how much leverage they had on the transaction, whether it's third-party leverage, seller note, whatever it may be, or even just investor capital that has expectations. I think it's a really, it seems like a really bad time to buy a commercial roofing business right now. <laughs> What's a high amount of leverage like to you in your mind? For this type of business, is what I would preface it. That's very important because we have a very long cash conversion cycle and we have kind of a lumpy, right? Sales kind of sales workflow because it takes a little while to estimate a job. It takes a while for people to be ready to spend 300 or 400 or $1.5 million on a roof. And then it takes a while to actually collect that payment and to kind of see all the profit squeezed out of the job at the very end. It creates really lumpy cash flow. So I would think, you know, it'd be very, very difficult to have a debt service coverage ratio of less than two, two and a half. I just think, I think you're setting yourself up for, you're probably fine, right? On a 12 month basis, but it's going to be very, very difficult on a monthly basis to make debt service obligations. That's just any business, right? Any industry is don't just look at your debt service coverage ratio on an annual basis. Look at it monthly. I mean, people probably do that, but I've, I've talked to people who haven't and then they run it monthly and they're like, oh gosh, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, quarter one stuff. That's always our, our thing yeah. is we bleed in quarter one. Yeah. Huh. This was awesome. I appreciate you coming on today. If people want to follow you, where can they find you? Twitter's probably the best place at the General Mills. I have one of those quirky names. And so people are always like Miles Miller, like Mills, no, like Mills, like General Mills cereal. So that, that's where the Twitter handle came from. So at the General Mills. And then I do a podcast with Michael Girdley and Bill D'Alessandro called Acquisitions Anonymous that John's been on. I think you're our only two-time guest. I think so. I you could also be our only three-time guest if you want to. If you want to give it another go, yeah, bring me back on. I'll bring some interesting <laughs> stuff to the table. I'll take a whirl at like e-commerce or something I know absolutely nothing about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Let's it always scares me when Bill talks businesses. about e-com. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's always fun chatting with you, John. Thanks for having yeah. me on, man. Thanks for coming on.